We're talking about reverencing God tonight. We're talking about the fear of the Lord, which is a misunderstood term. But I, I, I believe God is going to give me the, the ability to, to share truth. I want to just recap from the last couple of weeks because this teaching feeds from those teachings. So over the last couple of weeks, I've been teaching about grace, God's gift to us, his extraordinary, multifaceted gift. Sometimes I think about going to a, a baby shower and somebody brings one of those gifts that never ends those big baskets and one treasure after another, after another, after another. Just, just showering that mama-to-be with a, just a plethora of gifts for that baby. That's just, that's just a smidgen of that extravagant grace that God has for us because his grace is so vast. His gift for us is so multifaceted. But we talked about two sides of his grace. We talked about the cross side of his grace that was paid for once and for all 2,000 plus years ago by Jesus. The grace that purchased our fullness of salvation, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God so we have a vertical relationship open, open door, unbroken fellowship, no matter what, no matter what, nothing can sever your relationship with God. Now, if you believe that you have severed your relationship, it's you holding yourself away from God. It's not God keeping himself from you. Because once you've received him as your Lord, once you've accepted him and accepted his sacrifice, he is forever your father, and you are forever his child. So we talked about the cross side of grace. Part of that cross side of grace is healing. It says in numerous scriptures, both gifts of grace, both facets of grace are in the same scripture. 1 Peter 2.24 is one of them. He says that he took his sin into his body on the cross so that we could die to sin and be alive unto righteousness. By his stripes you were healed. There's not even a period in the middle of that scripture because they are completely connected. In Psalm 103, verse 2, it says, He forgives every one of all our iniquities. He heals every one of all our diseases. Same scripture, no period in the middle. Healing is a part of salvation, and I have a really in-depth teaching on that concept in our Bible study. And if you want more scriptural evidence, come to any of our ministry team, and we'll give that to you, because that's an important truth to have knowledge of from the Bible. So we talked about the cross side of grace, and then last week we talked about the resurrection side of the grace, because we were co-crucified with Christ and we were resurrected with him to new life. And that's what we talked about last week. We talked about the empowerment that we have to live. To live a full, whole, healed, healthy, divine life. Now, we don't see that in the world very often. But that's God's perfect will. That is our potential. 
And so we talked last week about being empowered to live that way. It's not us, it's not us being superheroes. It's God's resurrection grace through us. The purpose is for us to live our own life, our own personal life to the fullness. But it's also to live in a way that the, the grace moves horizontally and we manifest Jesus in our smile, in our actions. I'm gonna talk a little bit about that today. I'm gonna to share a couple examples of that today. So today, that moves us to today. Today we're gonna to talk about one way that we can manifest Jesus in our lives, and it's the fear of the Lord. Now, this fear that I'm talking about is not the fear that Jesus says, do not fear. 365 times in the Bible. That's not the fear we're talking about. There is a spirit of fear, a spirit of fear that is not from God. It's from the enemy. A spirit of fear that um, the, the Greek word, there's two words for that particular fear, and one of them is phobio, and it's where we get our word phobia. It's literally a terror or a phobia. That's not what I'm talking about today. That kind of fear I do teach about because it's very, very real. And it keeps you from faith because it takes up residence. It becomes an idol in your life and you give it, not because it has power, but because we give it power. And then it takes over and our faith can't rise up and take all of this amazing grace that God has paid for. That's another teaching. I'm not teaching that today. I'm teaching about this beautiful gift called the fear of the Lord. So as I've been preparing this, I have been undone by how often I'm reading about the fear of the Lord. I'm reading the book of Psalms right now and it's like every day, every day, more word, more scripture about the powerful gift and why the fear of the Lord is so powerful and beneficial and important. So let me give you a mini definition, and I'm going to keep going back to this over and over. Fear of the Lord is reverential awe. It's respect, honor, excuse me, honor, trust, love, and submission toward God. Fear of the Lord is choosing to give your life, to live your life with a focus of pleasing God above pleasing anybody else, above pleasing man, above pleasing your, your, your parents or your, even your family. Pleasing God is number one. That's the fear of the Lord. So the first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna look at a bunch of examples of Jesus. Because remember, I said, we're gonna look at how we can manifest Jesus. This is one of the ways. So Jesus lived delighting himself in fearing the Lord. I'm going to show you that in scripture. The first scripture I'm going to read is a prophetic word about Jesus from Isaiah chapter 11. Then a shoot, the Messiah, will spring from the stock of Jesse, David's father, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and of the reverential and obedient fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. 
He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make decisions by what his ears hear. So as we read the rest of this prophecy, we're going to see what delighting in the fear of the Lord looks like. Jesus isn't depending on his own hearing, his own seeing. But with righteousness and justice, he will judge the poor. He will decide with fairness for the downtrodden of the earth. He's going to stand up for the downtrodden. And with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. And righteousness will be the belt around his loins and faithfulness the belt around his waist. We're going to see as we look at scriptures of Jesus how he upheld truth. It didn't matter what the Pharisees or the scribes or the elders or the leaders of the church said. He, he followed his father's voice. He followed his father's timing. He didn't go ahead. He didn't go above what he thought or what he felt. His greatest desire was pleasing his father. So I've got a bunch of amazing scriptures I'm going to share with you that show Jesus living in the fear of the Lord. The first one I want to show you is how he lived to please his father. This comes from John chapter 8. So they asked Jesus, who are you anyway? And Jesus replied, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to say and judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true. And I say to the world only the things that I've heard from him. So he basically is saying, I could have told you all sorts of things. I've been watching you. I could judge you. But he says, nope, I'm not doing that. Because I choose to say only what my father says. I, I say to the world only the things that I have heard from him. And then it says, they did not realize or have the spiritual insight to understand that he was speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the son of, the man, the son of man on the cross... You will know then, without any doubt, that I am he, and I do nothing on my own authority. But I say these things just as my father taught me, and he who sent me is always with me. He's not left me alone, because I always do what pleases him. And as he said these things, many believed in him. So Jesus is saying, after I am crucified, after you lift the Son of Man up on the cross, then you'll believe. And he says, but everything I've done, I've not done on my own authority. I've been following my father's will, my father's direction. And then he says, I do what pleases my father. That is the fear of the Lord. So I'm going to show you a couple more scriptures. In these scriptures, you're going to see how Jesus waited on his father's timing and his father's initiative before moving out and taking action. He wasn't moved by people. He wasn't moved by circumstances. He was only moved by his father. Now, as I'm reading all of these, I'm looking at Cindy. Am I being moved by me, by my decision, by what I think I should do or what I think I should say? Or am I being moved by God? Am I letting him lead or am I taking the lead? Am I doing what pleases Cindy, or am I waiting and doing what pleases God? So let's look at what Jesus did. These are really interesting examples. John 7, verse 2 through 9. 
But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters, and Jesus' brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. Kind brothers, huh? For even his brothers didn't believe him. These are Jesus' brothers. There are numerous places, by the way, you may not have read this in the Bible. There's numerous places in the Bible where it talks about Jesus' brothers and sisters. So we know that Jesus was conceived immaculately through the Holy Spirit. But according to the Bible, Mary and his stepfather Joseph had children after that. And so his blood brothers were ridiculing him. They were almost taking offense at this brother, this Jesus, who was rising up. People were coming from everywhere to hear him teach with such authority. There were signs and miracles following him everywhere. And they're saying, well, you better go show everybody your miracles, brother. And this is what Jesus said. Now is not the right time for me to go. But you can go anytime. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me. Because I accuse it of doing evil. And he did, didn't he? Jesus didn't, he wasn't, he wasn't, soft-spoken when it came to evil, when it came to what was wrong. He was very forthright. He was very open. <clears throat> and he says, I can't go right now. And then he says, you go. I'm not going to go to this festival right now because my time has not yet come. And after saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. So he was listening to his father. He was heeding his father's voice. So he was in the area of the Galilee, which is about 70 miles north of Jerusalem. And every um, high holiday, the Jewish people were supposed to go to Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't following the religious law. He didn't care about the religious law. He cared about what his father said. And he said, nope, can't go yet. It's not yet my time. Now you see in the next scripture, he actually did go um, discreetly. And that's another part of the scripture. But at this point, he said, not yet. It's not time. So he was following his father's timing, not his own. And he wasn't letting his brothers and their words affect him. Here's the next scripture, another example. John 11. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the same Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. And that's when he went and raised Lazarus from the dead. But what I wanted to show you is here are his closest friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, very, very close to Jesus. And when Lazarus was sick unto death, Jesus didn't go. Why? Because his father directed him not to. His father said, no, no. He said, it's not unto death. Well, he was raised from the dead. We know that. And 
His father told him this is to bring glory to God and it's to bring glory to the Son of God. This was probably the event that led to Jesus' crucifixion and our salvation when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And it was ordained by God to happen this way. He heard his father. He listened to his father. I think about, again, I, every time I read these, I think about my life. And you can do the same thing and say, God, was I compelled to take an action too soon? Was I compelled to share something that you shared with me and it was just supposed to be for me? But I shared it before you released me to share it. You know, those kinds of things I'm just stopping and thinking because that's all part of fear of the Lord. It's choosing to seek God and please him above man. So Jesus' first priority was pleasing his father and submitting to his will. I'm going to read two more examples. This example is Jesus with Peter, one of the three inner circle of his apostles. And I'm going to read an account, but before this account in the Bible was the account where the apostles are all with Jesus at um, Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus asks them, he says, who do the people say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the one we've been waiting for. You are the Messiah. Now, I'm paraphrasing. I'm not sure that's the exact words, but that's the gist of what Peter said. And Jesus stopped. He said, you didn't hear that from man. That's a revelation from God. And then Jesus said, upon that rock, upon that revelation, Peter, that I'm the Christ, that I'm the Messiah, that's where we're going to build. That's where my church will be built. And the very next verse is what I'm going to read. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must of necessity suffer many things and be rejected as the Messiah by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. That part breaks my heart. It wasn't by the Romans. It wasn't by the terrible sinners. It was by the church leaders. And Jesus is telling his apostles this. And then he says, and I must be put to death. And after three days, rise from death to life. He was stating the matter plainly, not holding anything back. Then Peter took Jesus aside and began to reprimand him. But turning around with his back to Peter and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan. For your mind is not set on God's will or his values and purposes, but on what pleases man. That's what we're talking about, this fear of the Lord, choosing to please God above all else. Jesus is, is making the choice to live and then to die. He knows what's coming. And when Peter's um, comforting him and saying, oh, no, Jesus, no, we're not going to let that happen. We're going to protect you. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I'm here to fulfill the will of God. Yeah, I would rather not die. But I'm not here to be, you know, to live a happy, wonderful life. I'm here to live for you and die for you so that you can have that life. 
when you think about this scripture, again, I keep looking at myself as I read these scriptures, and I think about those times, and you probably have lived this, this scenario that I'm talking about. If you're a believer that Jesus heals today, if you're a believer that it is God's perfect will to heal, you've probably had people disagree with you. You've probably had people say you're in denial. You've probably had people say you're crazy or whatever. But what you're believing and what you're declaring is the perfect will of God because it says so in the Bible. And the Bible is his will. And you're choosing to believe the word even though you might not see the evidence in your body. And when people disagree with you and maybe argue with you, you could say the same thing as Jesus. Now, I know you won't say those direct words, but you can say it in your heart. You can say, no, I'm not going to listen to that. Get behind me, Satan. I choose to believe the will of God, not the word of man. It's easier to blame stuff on God and say, well, it must be God's will. It's way easier. But that's not the truth. That's not the will of God. And when people disagree with the will of God, you have a choice to agree with God or to agree with man. Here's another example of Jesus. This is Jesus and his family. This one hits home with me big time because my family's not in agreement with Kent and I, my extended family, my mom, my dad, my siblings. So listen to Jesus. Matthew chapter 12. While he was still talking to the crowds, it happened that his mother and brother stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. But Jesus replied to the one who had told him. This is what he said. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward the disciples and all the other followers, so that you guys, that's me. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven by believing in me and following me is my brother and sister and mother. Whoa. Now, I don't believe Jesus was dishonoring his family. But I believe what Jesus was doing was talking about the body of Christ, talking about our, our future to be the children of God, to be the family of God, to all be in communion, all in union. And Jesus preached the importance of honoring, his, honoring your family. He, he, at the cross, he said to John, his closest apostle, he said, John, this is your mother. Mother, this is your son. He cared deeply about his mother. He honored his family. And yet, when he was in the midst of ministering, he wasn't going to be interrupted. He, his priority at that time was sharing the light, sharing the message with authority and with power. And that wasn't the time to be interrupted. So he took a stand. I've had similar situations in my life. And it's not easy. Probably a lot of you have as well. Here's another example. This is Jesus with the religious leaders. 
Matthew 15, verses 7 through 14. You hypocrites, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders. He wasn't mincing words. He wasn't tiptoeing around their feelings. He was telling it loud and clear. He said, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. For he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands of God. And then, later, Jesus called the crowd to him. He said, listen, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You're defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you realize you just offended those Pharisees by what you just said? Jesus said, every plant not planted by my heavenly father will be uprooted. So ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind. And if one blind person guides another, they will both, they will both fall into the ditch. So Jesus was speaking loud and clear. He wasn't um, uh, afraid of man and man's response. Why? Because his fear was in the Lord. His reverence was in God and God's will. And he was making a choice to completely, clearly follow God's will and not get stuck in the fear of man. And we just, I just showed you examples of his closest apostle, his family, the religious leaders, his closest friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, where he made a choice to follow God. Number one, Jesus delighted in living in the fear of the Lord. So we're going to switch gears now. What does that mean to us? How do we do it? How do we follow Jesus' example? So I want to go back to that definition of the fear of the Lord. Reverential awe, just, just let this soak in. Reverential awe, that's why I started with that song where we were literally looking at the greatness of what God has done, where he spoke galaxies into existence, where he, he created the mountains, the rocks. There's scriptures that says, if we don't praise him, the rocks will cry out in praise to God. But we can praise him. We have hearts, we have emotions, we have voices, we have intellect. We have what it takes to praise him, to reverence him. Fear of the Lord is putting our eyes on how great God is and reverencing him. It's honoring him. It's respecting him, it's trusting him, loving him, and submitting to him. Reverence, um, fear of the Lord is choosing to live your life pleasing the Lord more than pleasing men. And then I added one more point in our lives that Jesus didn't have to deal with this, but we do. It ultimately comes, to our pers comes down to our perspective and our position. Our perspective, who is God, and what is my perspective on his nature, his character, his power, his justice? We grow in that perspective. We're going to learn as we 
immerse ourselves in his word and in, in relationship with him. We grow and we see God in his proper perspective, which is so great, so mighty, so powerful, so much above anything that we deal with here on this earth. He spoke this to me about six weeks ago and he specifically gave this to me for Nathan and one other woman. But he said to me, he said, the gravity of the problem is nothing compared to the gravity of God. And that's just the shift of our perspective and seeing God as he truly is, which is almighty, all-powerful, the God who heals, the God who loves, the God who has already rescued us, redeemed us, and saved us. So it comes down, this thing called fear of the Lord, comes down to our perspective. Is, is our perspective correct? And secondly, our position, our position relative to the Almighty God. Well, good news. Because of Almighty God, our position is righteous. Not because of who we are, but because of what Jesus did for us. Our position is, is loved. Our position is seated at the right hand of God in Christ with the enemy under our feet, with authority and with power. That's our position. And when we come into um, a deeper revelation of the true perspective of God and our position in him, it puts us in that place where we can depend on him. We can choose to please him. So what I'm going to share over the next few minutes are several pieces of the fear of God that we can grow in. And I'm not saying it's easy because I'm preaching this to me. There are a lot of these things I'm going to be sharing with you that I've been going to God about because he's been showing me that I'm not there. The first one is, do you fear God more than you fear man? Whose words, thoughts, and opinions do you give the most consideration to? When we fear man more than we reverence or honor God and his word, then we're not fearing the Lord. That's a hard one. You know, it's really easy, really super easy for me to reverence God with all my heart when I'm in this environment. <laughs> totally. You guys are coming like little sponges ready to soak up all the good news that I can give you, right? Look at, you're, you're just sitting there like taking it all in. What's your first name again? Patty. I'm just watching every, you're, you're just 100% taking it in. I love it. It's easy. But when I'm out there, you know, when I'm out in the marketplace or when I'm out, even in my family environment, you know, up north at the lake on the boat, and they're not in agreement with me, it's a completely different picture. This, what you see, isn't what you see on the boat on Horsehead Lake. It just doesn't flow. Every now and then, the Holy Spirit just takes over. But that's... You know, that's not all the time. That's once in a while. Why? Probably because I'm fearing man more than I'm fearing God. Listen to the scripture, Proverbs 29, 25. 
The fear of man brings a snare. But whoever leans on, trusts in, and puts his confidence in the Lord is safe and set on high. So let's take the scripture in two pieces. The first part says, fear of man brings a snare. The word snare is a trap. It's enemy is the enemy. Another trap of the enemy, another bait of Satan. He wants us to fear man more than God because that takes us out of the position of being an overcomer. He doesn't want us to be trusting in the Lord. The second part says, but whoever leans on, trusts in, and puts his confidence in the Lord, that's fearing God. That's what that second part is. That's caring more about what God cares about than what man cares about. And when we lean on God, when we trust in him, when we're confident in him, then we're safe and we're set on high. So the question is, who or what do you trust or respect the most? Trust is a measure of your true alliance. Who you're trusting, who you're leaning on, who you're putting confidence in is a measure of your true alliance. Alliance, who's, who are you in agreement with? Who are you connected with? Who are you united with? Now let's put that in the context of healing. Is your trust completely in God? Are you leaning on God? Are you, are you, is he your anchor in this journey that you're on? Or is it your doctor? Now there's nothing wrong with doctors. But if your trust is in the doctor, if your trust is in the medicine, if your trust is in the, the next diet or the next supplement or the next essential oil or the next anything, and it's not in God, then you're fearing man instead of God. Because another name for fearing God is trust, complete trust. So we have to be very cautious of who we're trusting. Now, you've heard me say this and you've heard Pastor Tim say this many, many times. Do everything you can do in the natural, in the medical, in the physical realm, and in the spiritual realm. But trust God for all of it. Give God lordship over all of it. And always take a step back and say, God, is my trust in you or is it in this medicine? Is my trust in you or is my hope in this next chemo drug? Is my trust and my focus, my confidence, is it in you, God? And then God blesses everything else. He blesses the medicine. He blesses the, 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 the word that you're speaking. He multiplies it and blesses it if we're trusting him and giving him lordship over it. I have a statement here that goes right along with this. This one about knocked the wind out of me this week. <laughs> Pick Jenny, I told you about this at lunch the other day. We do not have the right to reject the truth for another person. If you're afraid to tell someone the truth because you think it might offend them, you are rejecting the truth for them. If you're afraid to tell them the truth because you don't know what their reaction will be, maybe they'll argue with you. Maybe you already know what they believe and they don't believe like you believe. 
So you just choose not to say anything when they get that bad diagnosis or whatever the situation is. If you're doing that, you are rejecting truth for, for them. God has called us to live in the fear of the Lord, and that means do what Jesus did. That means share truth, and then it's up to them to accept it or reject it. But share truth with them. Share truth in love. Yes. So I have an example of this happening to me this week, and that's why I said about knock the wind out of me, because I've got this all on paper, and I've been preparing this message, and have the scriptures to back it up, and then I get a phone call. And on this phone call, um, uh, I'm not going to give too many details, because I want to keep it confidential, but in this phone call, a gentleman called me who I had given him my number because he needed healing prayer. And as we were talking, he said, there's something else I'd like to ask you. He said, I have a very close friend who also needs healing. And I was telling her about your ministry, and she would like, for prayer. She would like prayer too. And he said, but she has some, she's, she's seeking healing in a lot of ways right now. For example, she's, um, she reads tarot cards. She's into crystals and um, Reiki and a lot of other alternatives, spiritual healing. And that's, that's a real word, spiritual healing. But the thing is, it's not God, God's side, okay? It's the wrong spirit, yes. So as he's telling me this on the phone, and he wants me to, to say yes or no, will I talk to this lady and pray with her or not? And my first thought was, no, thank you. Honestly, that's what I was thinking. Nope, not going there. I'm just not going to. I got a lot of people that want to know the truth. I'm not going there. And then God said this to me. He said, you don't have the right to reject the truth for another person. So I'm on the phone, and he's speaking that to my heart. And I said, okay, 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 I hear you. And he, and he, and he very kindly said, now, if you condemn her or you judge her, she's going to say, that's what Christians do. They judge. So I took his word. I needed him to tell me that. And I did talk to her, and I had a wonderful conversation. And I didn't judge anything she told me. But what did I do? I shared all sorts of good stuff about Jesus. And how loving he is. And what his word says. And what he's done for me. Shared my story. I didn't go into a lot of preaching. I just shared a little bit. And then I offered to minister to her. I didn't even pray with her right then and there. But I offered. And I said, but when I pray, I pray in the name of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And I said, I would be happy to, to spend time with you and talk and pray. So I said, you think about it. You have my number. You can call me back. So that's where I left it. But Jesus, or God, literally spoke to me. And he said, Cindy, you don't have the right to reject the truth for somebody. You give the truth, and then it's up to them to accept it or reject it. Here's another example, um, and this, is, this has happened to me, and it's really angered me, frustrated me, and that is I have, I have amazing family. I have loving parents. I have an amazing, close-knit, beautiful family. They know that Kent and I are in the ministry of healing. My mom and my dad, they don't know what they're doing. It's, they, they don't know. They totally don't know. But they often reject the truth for people. 
because what they do is if somebody if, that they know, that they, you know, somebody from their church or a friend has a physical problem, if it's not too big, they tell them about Kent and I. They tell them about our ministry. Dad will call me and say, you know, my friend was just diagnosed with cancer and um, I told him about you and, and you know, I, would you pray for them? And then I'll take their contact information. I'll call them and I'll talk to them if, if they're open, if they want to talk to me. And that's all good. But if there's somebody that gets a very serious, aggressive, terminal, chronic diagnosis, they don't tell me. It's as if God's not big enough for that. He's big enough to heal something if it's little, but if it's huge, it, it's, it's just too big, right? And so what they're doing, and they don't know what they're doing, but they're rejecting the truth of healing. Now, the people that they know are all believers and they love Jesus, but they don't know about healing. And because they're, my mom and dad are choosing to cipher or siphon out who they share our ministry with and who they don't, they're rejecting the truth about healing for people, but they don't even realize they're doing it. So part of this fear of the Lord is sharing truth and then letting the people decide yes or no whether they're going to receive it or not. Here's the next truth, Proverbs 1.7. This is really good news. The reverent fear of the Lord, that is, worshiping him and regarding him as truly awesome, is the beginning and the preeminent part of knowledge, its starting point and its essence. So that scripture, that promise, says that as we reverence God, that as we worship him and regard him as truly awesome, that is the beginning point of knowledge. That's the beginning point of knowing God and knowing his word. So listen to this. This is a healing meeting. As we worship Jesus as Jehovah Rapha, Jesus the healer, as we envision the stripes that Jesus took on his back for us, and we literally allow ourselves, our emotions, our heart, to see what he did for us, to put our, our, our heart and our thinking and our, our, our imagination on the fullness of what he did for us as we thank him, as we reverence him, as we glorify him for taking those stripes on our back and dying for us so that we could have the fullness of life. We're doing what this word says. We're giving him reverential awe and I believe in the midst, because this is a promise, that we come to know him as our healer more intimately. That we come to know his promises, his word of healing more deeply in our heart. I believe this scripture is true in the general sense that as we praise and worship and reverence him that we come to know him more in general. But I believe it's also specific because we can come to know him in his in his. In his unique um, character, you know, the God of love, the God of peace, the God of healing, the God of, of uh, oh, he hates sickness, the God of, of anger against what's wrong in this world, 
as we come to know him in each of his attributes through worship and through reverence, then we come to know him and his promises more deeply. It's the starting point. That's a powerful tool. We need it. Here's the next promise. Proverbs 8.13. Listen to this. The reverent fear and worshipful awe of the Lord includes the hatred of evil. Fearing God equals hating evil. That word hatred in the, in the Hebrew is the word sane. And it literally means to make a personal enemy of. So we can say fearing the Lord includes making a personal enemy of those things that God calls evil. God hates sickness. He died to give us life. The enemy is the author of sickness. He hates sickness. He wants us to hate what he hates and love what he loves. If we're tolerating sickness, we're not in the fear of the Lord. We're not delighting in the fear of the Lord. If we're making peace with sickness, if we're accepting it, we're, we're, we're not hating what God hates. Listen to these questions. Have you made peace with some sort of sickness in your life? Do you tolerate it? Same thing goes with a stronghold of sin. Is there a stronghold of sin in your life that you're just kind of letting stay? It's kind of hidden under the rug and it's not bothering too much so you're just kind of tolerating it. God hates that. He doesn't hate you. He loves you. But he wants you to have the best. And that can have severe consequences in your life that he doesn't want you to live in. He hates sickness. He hates sin. And if we are accepting it, if we're tolerating it, if we're making peace with it, then we are not delighting in the fear of the Lord. Listen to this analogy. This one is powerful. My kids, my, my son and his wife and my grandkids live in Nevada. And in Nevada, there are some dangerous animals um, in their backyard and in their garage, and I don't know if they've ever had them in their house, but they've seen them a lot out in their yard and in their garage. They have black widows. And my daughter, when my grandkids were little, Kay would go out before they would play in their sandbox and she'd look. Sometimes there were black widows in the sandbox. Well, she told her, my son, Chad, she said, we are getting an exterminator. I don't care what it costs. <laughs> I'm calling him. We are gonna have an exterminator. I'm not gonna let my kids play with black widows. So they did, and now they have an exterminator. But listen to this. If there was a black widow in their house, if Kay found a black widow in their house, do you think that she would tolerate it? Oh, no. Do you think she would even uh, step back and say, God, I trust you. Will you take that black widow out of my house? No, 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 no. My daughter-in-law would kill that thing so fast. Just like that, that dead, that spider would be a dead black widow. That's what God says to us about sickness. 
Sickness is like a snake or a black widow in our house. Are we tolerating it? Are we praying to God to remove it? He already did his part. He says, you take authority. You go after that thing. You cut off its head. You step on that black widow. Don't tolerate it. So that goes back to knowing truth. Because if you don't know truth, you don't know what to do. You think maybe you should tolerate it. That's stupid. Who wants to tolerate sickness? Who wants to tolerate danger? No. When we know God's irrevocable will for healing, and when we know that sickness is not from God, it's from the enemy, our perspective changes. When we view sickness the way God views it, it will birth anger and a lack of tolerance towards sickness and disease. That's the fear of the Lord. Hating what God hates and loving what he loves. I think we need to stir up holy anger. We heard it in Jesus. You know, when we talk about Jesus, yes, he's love, amazing love. But he hated evil. He spoke boldly. He twice in the Bible threw the tables in the, in the outer courts of the temple, knocked them down, threw them all over, and said, you are, what is that, a den of thieves. This is supposed to be a house of God, and you're making it into a den of thieves. And he violently just, just you know, caused havoc right there in the temple courts because it was wrong. Sickness is wrong. Listen to this scripture, Isaiah chapter 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who replace darkness with light and light with darkness, who replace bitter with sweet and sweet with bitter. I, I took the scripture, it's almost word for word from the New King James, but I took it out of the Passion translation because I wanted to give you the study notes. In the Passion um, translation of the Bible, they've got really, um, really interesting study notes. And this is what it said about the scripture. When Isaiah was writing this, he was writing to a people whose moral code was reversed. Sin was accepted as something good. Yep, like now. We see it in the world. The Bible says it's sin, but the world, the nation that we're living in, is saying it's good. And here's the next comment. These people, not content to abandon what is good, they labeled good as evil. So, and I'm just going to go out there right now and say uh, some things that I'm seeing in the world and that I know you're seeing in the world right now. In this, this world that we're living in, we're seeing the importance of acceptance, the importance of tolerance, the importance of loving everyone. God loves everyone. I'm not saying he doesn't. But the only one, the only people group that is seen as, as not accepted, that is seen as evil, are Christians. And we are not being accepted and we are not being um, tolerated. We are seen as judgmental and hypocritical or whatever. We, good is being seen as evil and evil is being seen as good. Those who abandon the absolute standards of God's will 
we'll find a reversal of every true virtue. This is the study notes from the Bible. Let me say that again. Those who abandon God's word will see a reversal of every virtue. That's what we're seeing. Good is mocked and evil is embraced. Light is ridiculed and darkness is worn like a cloak. What did we see Super Bowl Sunday at halftime? Look at the costumes. Darkness was being displayed. The sweetness of God is called bitter and the bitterness of sin is called sweet. Think about some of the things that God hates. He hates loss of innocent lives. And this country is killing innocent lives by the millions. And when people groups stand up for life, when our president stands up for life, we are called judgmental and hard and hard hard hearted because we're not caring for another people group. No, that's not the case. Think about what God says about sexual immorality in the Bible. And yet sexual immorality in the world is condoned big time. What is evil is being portrayed completely as, as is, is not just portrayed, it's received as good in this world that we're living in. And the opposite is also true. The fear of God that we're talking about tonight is hating what God hates and loving what he loves. More benefits. I've got three more nuggets and then we're going to um, sing one more worship song to God and then pray. Three more amazing benefits of fear of the Lord. Listen to this. Proverbs 10, 27. The reverent fear of the Lord, worshiping, obeying, serving, and trusting him with awe-filled respect, prolongs one's life. I love this promise. But the years of the wicked will be shortened. Promise is that when we reverence God, when we live a life loving him, that our life will be prolonged. I receive it. Proverbs 14, 26. Confidence and strength flood the hearts of the lovers of God who live in awe of him. That's reverence. That's worshipful fear of the Lord. Confidence and strength flood the hearts of the lovers of God who live in awe of him. And their devotion provides their children with a place of shelter and security. I take that one for my children. What I'm envisioning as I, as I just hear this promise, Psalm 91 says that as we dwell in the shelter of the Most High and under the shadow of his presence, that we're in his refuge, that we're protected. And then later on in the same psalm, it says we're under the shadow of his wings. So when I read this promise, I see myself under the wings of God, and I see my children under my wings as I'm under his wings. Because it says right here that my devotion provides my children 
with a place of shelter and security. And I know where I'm at. I'm under the wings of God. So that's where my kids are hanging. In Jesus' name. Proverbs 19.23. When you live a life of abandoned love, surrendered before the awe of God, here's what you'll experience. So if you live in that place of the fear of the Lord, reverencing God and awe of God, this is what you'll experience. Abundant life, continual protection, and complete satisfaction. That's one to take into your heart. Say, God, that's your promise for me. That's my life. Abundant life, continual protection, complete satisfaction. I receive it. I receive it. Amen. Amen.